Data or data? How do smart people say it? Oh, geez. We Ooh. might disagree on this one. They say data. I say, I say data. data. Okay. Oh. Okay. Oklahoma and Britain agreeing again. What? <laughs> you know. And now, the Asheville Museum of Science presents 7-Minute Science, powered by the 828.com. Welcome back. It's another edition of 7-Minute Science, a podcast for the curious. Every episode, we're answering those science questions you may have wondered about in seven minutes or less with the help of our experts. I'm Ken from the828.com. And I'm Corey with the Asheville Museum of Science. 7-Minute Science is a great way to learn something new while you're filling out your March Madness bracket, deciding which pair of socks to throw on, or cursing this cold weather. So thank you for joining us as we get ready to learn something new today. We hear the word data, or data, if you will, a lot these days, but what is data or data? <laughs> How is it used in climate monitoring? And does good data really matter all that much? Today, we keep our heads in the clouds with two experts who know a thing or two about data. Our first guest is CEO and founder of Studio 30K, a science support services firm based in Asheville focused on climate change. Dr. Ann Wapel previously spent 12 years in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, where she led the State of the Climate Reports. More recently, Ann spent three years as vice president at Second Nature, a national nonprofit, and established a climate resilience framework now adopted by over 100 education institutions. Dr. Ann Wapel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Good to be here. And because Two data experts are better than one. <laughs> Our second guest, Deke Arndt, the chief of the climate monitoring group at the National Centers for Environmental Information here in Asheville. The group is tasked to give play-by-play -play of the climate systems from regional droughts to the global temperature. Deke is the lead editor of the State of the Climate series and previously served as acting state climatologist for Oklahoma. Deke, thank you, sir, for being here. Thanks for having me. So Corey and I are going to attempt to learn as much as we can from the two of you in about seven minutes. We're going to pepper you with questions. And after that time, we're going to do our best to recap what we've learned. If all goes to plan, we will know a thing or two about data and how it is used in monitoring the climate. And of course, if you listen to this podcast before, you know that by seven minutes, we really mean about 15 minutes. So. <laughs> 17, 22. Yeah, something like that. So like, are we ready to get started? Yeah, you bet. Go for it. Alrighty, this first question, we'll start with you, Anne. What is data and why do we need it? Or is it even data? Or is, is it, it data? data? Yes, we, we've been struggling with that. <laughs> I say data. But, um, so data is, you know, we often use it interchangeably with the word information, but it's actually a little different. Data is input to information. So all sorts of things, usually we're going to measure it or observe it or analyze it in some way. We're going to use it to construct something of value, which we would call information. Uh, but it can be all sorts of things. You know, data can be, you know, all of the things we observe in a, on a day. We won't use most of that. Uh, it's only when, you know, the, the cops are going to say, "How did you see that crime? And we can recall some of that data that we've seen, that that becomes then information to apprehend the bad guy in this case. So in the climate, uh, we have temperature and we precipitation, rainfall, all sorts of uh, different variables. And then we put it together into a picture of what the climate looks like. And that becomes hopefully information for useful decisions. So when you do get all the data and the picture does start to come together, 
Then what? How is all of this data used in what you do and what can we learn from it? Well, like a lot of data, like Ian was describing, kind of around the world, there's an immediate use. So the weather forecasters will actually take today's observation, right now's observations, and compile it either for their own understanding or in a computer model, and we'll get you know weather forecasts out of it. Um, and the work that we do, we store that data. So all of the weather and climate observations from around the world end up in a library on disk in, or on paper in Asheville. And from a climate standpoint, we can take and begin to compile the things that we measure, like precipitation and temperature, and the things that we count, like hurricanes and tornadoes, and construct a long-term picture of how those things are changing or not changing over time. And the rate of that change and the amount of what we call variability or the jumping up and down along the time series are really important factors when we're doing things like planning our infrastructure, how big do we want a culvert to be, uh, things like that. So that's part of kind of how data become information on this longer term scale. Now, before we go any further, I just want to get this clear. <laughs> what is the difference between weather and climate? Well, so weather is is, is what you uh, get and climate is what you expect. That's kind of the classic um, I like that. Uh, okay, I saying. That. Uh, so climate tends to be statistical, long term in nature. We talk about averages. So today's weather in Asheville is cold. The temperature is in the 40s right now. But the average temperature, the climate temperature for this time of year, is in the 50s. So um, that's one way of kind of distinguishing climate and weather. Weather is climate is kind of weather over time. So, and so, weather is the here and now, basically. Yes, basically, where you know what you put on in the morning to walk out the door is you know your clothes for the day, but the climate is the clothes you have in your closet. Hmm. You know, so like the today versus what you expect over the course of a year or several years or. Or many decades. They're very good with the analogies. Yeah, I love that. I'm, I'm getting this. <laughs> All right, so when we're talking about data, how much is enough? And when do we move from findings to scientific knowledge and something that we know? Well, you know, any good scientist will say, there's never enough data. Never so enough. We want more. Uh, but in reality, sometimes, you know, you get most of the answer with, you know, with a certain amount of data and then it, more and more data sometimes just doesn't add that much more to the conclusion. And so one of the things we do with climate is uh, there's actually a formal process of evaluation about what we do and don't know. So we look across all of the research, we evaluate tons and tons of data, and we say, is it looking like we know something about this particular part of climate? Do we uh, do we need more data? Do we need more research on this particular thing? And we can assign confidence, actual scientific confidence in what it is that we know. And this is a long, usually fairly long, formal process. Um, but that's how we, every sort of several years or so, that's how we evaluate what we know about climate change. And that then becomes more authoritative information that we can design policy around or decisions around. So if we need to change building codes, for example, we want to be sure that the data we're using is good, that it's repeatable, that we know it's the same from uh, research to research. And that process of climate assessment helps us do that. So you're talking about confidence. Is there a numerical value to that? Is it a percentage or is that something that is yeah, a hard question to answer? Yeah, <laughs> it's a tough one. Um, but what we've done with the climate assessment is assign useful phrases that everybody identifies with. So we say um, we're virtually certain or it's uh, we're very confident or we're not very confident. 
Um, and that corresponds with certain percentages in terms of, you know, how we feel about the data. Sounds like you're so, covering your... Well, there's, ne- you know, there's <laughs> never certainty in science. That's the problem. Like, there's never certainty. So 99% certainty, we say, is virtually certain. And that's about as good as science gets, you know, in anything. And so when we, when we say... Yeah, climate has warmed over the last century. We are virtually certain about that, which means that's as good as it gets. Yeah. You were telling us, Deke, about all of this data from around the world that's being kept in Asheville. Is this timeless information or does it ever come time to start cleaning out the junk drawer, so to speak? Like, are we still using some of this? Can we go back and stuff in the past still be useful, even though it may have been looked at over and over and over again? So it... it as much as it hurts scientists, like Ann said, you always want more data, right? And it hurts to see data go away. Um, some data sets are, are become obsolete or irrelevant or not used. And so part of the, the role of an archive, particularly an archive that's, that's using public resources to operate, we always reassess how long is this data set going to stay around? Who's using it? How often are they using it? You know, there's a, a basically a sunset review, you know, every five to 25 to 50 years, depending on the data set. So we do examine that, um, even though it hurts us scientists to even consider that data <laughs> would go away. When we talk about this data being collected, is it always scientists that are collecting it or can citizens help collect it? Do you use data that's been collected from, say, farmers way back in the day? Um, where's some of this data being collected from and can citizens help? Absolutely. So one of my favorite projects uh, that I did when I was going through college was uh, I looked at the data records, the temperature and precipitation records from a vineyard in the south of England. Mm. And this guy had been kept in, keeping uh, climate data for, I think it was 85 years at that point. Uh, so one of the longer records that we had at the time in this particular part of southern England. And you could see changes over that period of time. All sorts of people have been collecting climate and weather data for a long time. And so we've got diaries going back hundreds of years where people noted down what the weather was like. Uh, And uh, even today, we've got networks where citizens collect rainfall data, for example. They're using the standard little plastic rain gauge out in the backyard, and that actually fills in a tremendous amount of rainfall information for the United States. So even if you don't know, like say a mook like me who has one of those plastic things uh, in his yard, (laughs) is that kind of citizen science useful though when you don't know if I've been so careful with my record keeping and my methods, uh, is it still useful? So one of the the great ways to mitigate against do we have enough data and are these data good enough is more data, right? So um, so the... Citizen science today, one of the beautiful things about it is it looks a lot like citizen science 120 years ago when we were first, you know, kind of realizing we need to systematically observe the weather um, in order to make better weather forecasts. So that that plastic rain gauge is not too different. And there's standards and there's a certain size and we want a certain quality of rain gauge, but they're all achievable. Um, that, that looks a lot like what people were doing 120 years ago. And one of the really beautiful things about working on the climate, monitoring the climate using data, is that, you know, today's data are being mixed with data observations from people from 120 years ago. So Mm -hmm. today we know a little bit more about the climate system and about how much rainfall falls and how variable it can be and how much can happen thanks to observations collected maybe on a farm in Nebraska in 1892. 
And it's just a really neat connection to um, know that people are still observing. It's still an important thing to do. Um, and we're connected with generations past. There are a lot of people I'd love to go back in time and say, thanks. We're having this really weird conversation about climate as a nation <laughs> right now. And the things that you did in 1892 have really helped, you know, bring some clarity to that. But Deke, it wouldn't happen if we threw away that data. <laughs> that's so that's right. why you never <laughs> no. know what, what to throw that's away, we, what to keep. <laughs> keep it all. Yeah, that weather data matter. sticks around a long yeah, time. That's right. So where does all this data get stored? You said that there's, you know, a lot of storage here in Asheville. Is it paper still? Is CD-ROMs? I mean, or is it all on these big servers? It's it's uh, yes, all a of little mix of everything. <laughs> it's all on floppy disks. Sorry, <laughs> yes. Kids, so millions of floppy disks. So that that's another um, thing that we have to manage, right? Media changes. The the way we store things change. So. Um, in 1892, this was all coming in through the U.S. mail on paper. Now we've digitized a lot of that, so someone has typed it in. We've taken pictures of it. We've scanned it. We've got digital records of it. Um, so we're we're more and more electronic now than we used to be. We have, I don't know how much a petabyte is, but we've got 28 of them. <laughs> that in, sounds in, like a lot. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's something like if you were to stack an iPhone's worth of storage, if you were to store all of this data on iPhones, you'd have like 10 Eiffel Towers high or something like that. It's a lot of data. Yeah, so um, wow. yeah, it all comes in. It now comes in almost entirely electronically, and we store it electronically. I have no idea what the storage media will look like in 40 years, but there are the people that follow us will be dealing with how do we make sure we make a smooth, rigorous, you know, re- reproducible transition from today's electronic data to whatever is tomorrow. So is there somebody that's job is to go down, look through those paper records and just hunt through old data that somebody's written on their, you know, vineyard in England. Is that someone's job? It is. There's actually a a whole program of work to to digitize old data. So even uh, one of my uh, jobs at NOAA at one point was looking at recently declassified World War II ship records. Mm. So that you know some of that was only recently de- declassified a decade or so ago. And some you know it's all on paper from from those ships. And so we actually have to scan it in, decide what's relevant, digitize it. Somebody actually has to enter that data and then it p- gets put together in a comprehensive data set of World War II ship records. And that really helps to fill in some gaps in terms of what we think the ocean temperatures were or temperatures across the ocean surface uh, from 1939 to 1945. So, And that's hugely important in terms of making sure we have all of the trends that we think we do. Fascinating. I would have not thought in World War II that they were so concerned with monitoring water temperature, but I guess that's an important thing. (laughs) I know. You'd think they would have been fairly busy doing other things during World War II. But every day, at least twice a day, there were uh, temperature improvements. Because it made a difference to how their ship operated as well in terms of the water temperature. So, And one of the really cool things about this project that Anne worked on is is the way we observed ocean sea surface temperatures changed permanently in World War II <laughs> because what we used to do before World War II is throw a bucket over the side of a ship, carry it up, measure, stick a thermometer in that bucket, and that was our sea surface temperature observation. Well, the deck of a ship was not a real fun place to be in the North Atlantic <laughs> in World War II, so we started measuring it through the intake uh, 
port on the sides of ships. And we actually have to correct for that change in the, the record of the, the global temperature. So this kind of metadata that and you know, what I'm kind of callously calling metadata, these beautiful stories <laughs> of what's relevant that Anne was talking about, that makes a difference. Let's give it an well unromantic we'll... name. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Yeah. yeah, actually, and that's that's actually goes back to your question about how we know uh, in terms of backyard observers as well, how how we can trust the data is because we collect data about the data, so which is what we're calling metadata mm. here. Mm -hmm. So uh, you would write down what time you measured your rain gauge, and that really helps us adjust for if some people are measuring at seven in the morning and some people at ten at night, and so and so we can we can adjust um, what we what we know happened with the rainfall based on this really important metadata. It's almost like they're archaeologists. I know. Isn't it? Because you also get to, you're... Uncovering all of the secrets yeah. of the weather. Doing these Indiana Jones type <laughs> missions and it's all through paper and you're making data. You're making data sound really great right It's now. like archaeology <laughs> except you're at a desk with 50 coffee cups around you. Basically, is it? I don't know. The, the winery research project sounds <laughs> pretty nice. Pretty interesting too. I completely lucked out with that project. <laughs> yeah. So oftentimes at 7 Minute Science we kind of brag a little bit about Asheville. We're here in Asheville. We love Asheville and you know recently Asheville's become uh, kind of geared towards climate, you know, climate city. Where does that name come from? I know a lot of this uh, this data is here, and and what's going on in Asheville that makes it kind of this beacon for as like Climate City USA. Well, as Deke was mentioning a, a little bit ago, all of the world's weather data ends up in Asheville, North Carolina, which most people even who live here are not so aware of. So the the federal building in Asheville is where NOAA, the National Center for Environmental Information, sits. And so that is the, the hub of where the data comes and goes. Um, and over the last several years as well, we've been working to make sure that, that those data that are there can become information, especially as uh, more and more cities and businesses and so on are having to use climate data in order to plan and to minimize risk. Since we know the climate is changing, risks are changing, implications for businesses and cities are changing. Uh, and so we also have uh, something called the Collider in Asheville, which is designed to support a whole range of climate services, taking those data, making them useful, making them into information for a whole variety of different uses. Um, and actually, we have a, um, a meeting next week where we've got uh, over 100 people coming to town from all sorts of different sectors. And we're going to be talking about how we can make those data more useful and how we can move forward, you know, in, in a societally relevant way, providing mm. all of these services. This is a pretty big thing. This it's is a the big deal, first yeah. climate con. Climate con. Is what it's called. Yes, climate con 2018. This is really exciting. It's exciting to be in uh, a place where uh, this data is available, but also where people are so um, excited about using this for good and using this uh, in ways that are unique. So it's it's really interesting to watch this grow. And so I'm excited to see how ClimateCon goes. Yeah, we're excited too. There are some serious challenges with the climate, but you know, this is a fun challenge for us mm. as scientists as well. We're conscious of all of the negative impacts that climate is causing, but you know, this is hard and it's what we love. And from the science side, we get to figure out how this actually helps people, real people in real cities and real circumstances. Dr. Ann and Deke save the world.
<laughs> and they're starting in Asheville. Uh, tomorrow. Right. Can we do it tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, really great work with the Collider as well and uh, ClimateCon. And we'll get you linked up to everything about that as well at the 828.com slash science. Because good stuff is happening here in good Asheville. Good stuff is happening here. And we've just learned a lot about data or data, depending on how you say it. And so now's the time to assess whether Ken and I were listening. I can tell you right now we're going to need some help. So don't tune out yet because we're going to need your help to kind of recap what we've just learned in a minute. I haven't heard anything since Vineyard. I'm sorry. (laughs) We both checked out there. (laughs) Are are you ready for us to restate what we've learned? You bet. Yeah. All right, Corey, begin, please. All right, let's start with data. Basically, data is the input to information and kind of provides a clear path to the truth and, and what we're trying to get at. And, you know, there's never too much data. Is that right, Deke? That's right. <laughs> there's a problem, throw more data at it. it yeah. <laughs> or more storage. Or right? more storage. <laughs> yeah. And That's there's right. never enough data. Uh, and you can use data to uh, predict things with 99.9% certainty. <laughs> but we've learned that uh, scientists love to have a disclaimer. Um, <laughs> That's right. Uh, we al- we also learned that using the data, as far as our environment is concerned, that weather is more of the here and now. The weather is, oh, it's raining. I need an umbrella today. Whereas climate is, oh, I'm going to pack my flannel away and pull out my jorts because warmer <laughs> temperatures are coming. That is climate. <laughs> That's the difference. That's kind of looking forward. Correct? Perfect. All right. Yes, perfect. <laughs> Good call out on jorts there. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. And as citizens, we can help, right? So even back when, uh, you know, we've been collecting data for centuries and that hasn't gone away yet. There's there's stacks and stacks of that data still here and we're still using it, and uh, which is pretty neat. And so we're using this data to assess where we're going, but also to tell us where we've been. Yes, that's that's very true. And you don't know where you're going without knowing where you've been. It's just where you've been. It's just like any other story in human history. Data helps really illuminate where we have been, where we are now, and the trajectory that we're going forward. And even though it sounds to me like it could be going down a rabbit hole, you sometimes study and collect data about data like something that a farmer may have collected years and years ago or the uh, sailors in World War II to help come up with new data to help solve problems and challenges that we're facing in modern times. Yes. And to make sure that we can trust the data that we're looking at. Yeah. That's that's the, uh, an important role of metadata. But if you can't trust the data, then <laughs> is the foundation of so many things just <laughs> crumbling beneath us? Well, that would be a situation in which we would need more data. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of reassuring just to know that as long as we get more data, everything will be okay. It just sounds like it's job security for you, too. (laughs) That's right. Uh, He's found us out. That's right. And it's good to know and it's good to be a part of this community here where this data is accessible uh, to not only the government, but also to programs like The Collider and uh, Studio 30K doing wonderful things. And, of course... ClimateCon 2018, and we're excited to see where that goes. Yes, really. Pr- we're just really proud to see what goes on here. I mean, this you, you may not know this, but in my line of work, Asheville is one of the places you want to end up uh, working. It is a, destina- a career destination town. There are a lot of data people. This is the holy grail for them to come to Asheville. <laughs> yes. for I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think yeah. it's like that for people in a lot of professions, but yeah. a lot of it has to do with just that. You know, Asheville is a beautiful place, but you actually have all the data and all these beautiful minds here. So I see that. I get that. That's right. I kind of feel honored sitting right here with y'all. <laughs> I was going to say thank present you. company. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Ann Wapel and Deke Arndt. 
for talking with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much. No, it's been a lot of fun, very informative. And thank you for checking us out again on 7-Minute Science. Hope you learned something and can share this knowledge with a friend, family member, or a colleague. Listen to past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and of course at the828.com slash science. 7-Minute Science powered by the Astro Museum of Science on the828.com. <laughs>